Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today's episode is sponsored by listener Paula, but not my mom, who says, quote, <laughs> yeah. I've been to hummums in the Middle East and Central Asia, to saunas in Finland, and most recently to a seaweed baths in Ireland. I'd really Sounds love really for nice. you, I know. <laughs> I'd really <laughs> love for you to do an episode on the archaeology and anthropology of bathing, concepts of hygiene and that kind of thing. In particular, why is this whole hot cold cycle so popular and where did it start? Yes, indeed. So clean out your ear holes, listeners. This week we bring you a very brief history of personal hygiene. So let's start off with this. How do we know when we're dirty? I mean, unless you get to the level where you're like the Peanuts character Pigpen and he got dust clouds and visible stink lines coming off you, it's usually less of a visual cue and more of an olfactory one, right? Body odor. And just a note, much of this is going to come back to our old friend cultural relativism. Some cultures are hypersensitive to certain ideals of cleanliness, and those perspectives vary all over the world. So keep that in mind as we go. But a fundamental question, why do we humans react to certain types of body odors as icky? We don't, like dogs or cats, or actually most other mammals probably, greet one another by sniffing butts. Typically, certain bodily human smells are perceived as unpleasant. Why? One theory is that the disgust reaction evolved as a way to protect, protect against bacteria. So this is from the abstract of a paper by Val Curtis, Robert Onger, and Tamar Raby, published in the Royal Society's Biology Letters. Quote. Dear biology. Dear I never thought biology. it would happen to me. Disgust? Disgust has happened to me. <laughs> okay. Quote. Disgust is a powerful human emotion that has been little studied until recently. Current theories do not coherently explain the purpose of disgust, nor why a wide range of stimuli can provoke a similar emotional response. Over 40,000 individuals completed a web-based survey using photostimuli. Images of objects holding a potential disease threat were reported as significantly more disgusting than similar images with little or no disease relevance. This pattern of response was found all across all regions of the world. Females reported higher disgust sensitivity than males. There was a constant decline in disgust sensitivity over the life course, and the bodily fluids of strangers were found more disgusting than those of close relatives. These data provide evidence that the human disgust emotion may be an evolved response to objects in the environment that represent threats of infectious disease. And actually, as a 
point to add on to that. Um, a lot of disgust is a culturally learned thing. So I think this is talking about a couple of different kinds of reaction because there maybe there's uh, an evolutionarily um, evolved disgust reaction or maybe the cultural um, passing on of the disgust reaction is the evolutionary response. But in any case, in humans, that disgust response doesn't really, at least in terms of food substances, um, doesn't happen until about age two, which is why kids will just kind of put anything in their mouth and they learn from mom and dad's reaction and, and the reaction of adults around them. Like, no, 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 that's yucky. Don't eat that. So hmm. so it's partially at least a learned behavior. So that's it's really interesting. Well, the word hygiene itself comes from Hygieia, the Greek, well, Hygieia, the Greek goddess of health, who was the daughter of Aesculapius, the god of medicine. Hey. Hey. Uh, since the arrival of the Industrial Revolution, which was um, sometime around 1750 to 1850 CE, and the discovery of germ theory of disease, uh, the discovery of the germ theory of disease in the second half of the 19th century CE, hygiene and sanitation have been at the forefront of the struggle against illness and disease. But what about in the way, way back? Um, it's probably safe to say that life as an early human or a Neanderthal was pretty stinky. Um, <laughs> Uh, but what is the earliest archaeological evidence for people cleaning themselves? Well, the first recorded evidence of soap making um, comes from Babylonian clay cylinders dating from about 2800 BCE. Um, mm -hmm. Inscriptions on those cylinders are the earliest known written soap recipe, and they describe a process by which fats could be combined with wood ash and water to create a substance capable of cleaning. The product thus produced was not necessarily used to wash the body. It might have been used to clean textile fibers such as wool and cotton in preparation for weaving into cloth. Um, but before we go too much further, uh, let's back up for a second. What even is soap? <laughs> what is it? Technically, soap is a, quote, salt of a fatty acid, end quote. Helpful, right? <laughs> which sounds like an insult. You salt of a, well, yeah, like a Shakespearean, oh, a vaguely salt Shakespearean. salt of a fatty acid. Oh, I like a, like my a, toe. Yeah. Oh, I want to use that. Yeah. Salt uh, of a fatty acid. <laughs> which, and, and that means that in the most basic sense, soap is any fat that hasn't been mixed with alkaline salts. Um, you can get those fats from plants or animals, and the alkaline component can come from things like ash or lye. Um, in the Ebers papyrus, which we've mentioned before, it's that medical text from Egypt from about 1550 BCE, um, indicates that ancient Egyptians bathed regularly and combined animal and vegetable oils with alkaline salts to create a soap-like substance. Yeah, and I did find one reference that suggested that Neanderthals used tweezers, like shell, muscle shell or, you know, bivalve shell tweezers, but I don't know. For for like hair removal, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. So, but I didn't include that because I don't know. How do you definitively yeah. tell that? Yeah. So I wanted to stick to soap for that Interesting. reason. Okay. Yeah. Well, in the wild ride that was the reign of Nabonidus, the <laughs> neo <-Vavilin> <laughs> No, really. <laughs> I know. Just... Um, it sounds like it's a book review. Yeah. <laughs> Three stars. He was uh, he was a Neo-Babylonian king um, who 
reigned from 556 to 539 BCE. Um, there is a recipe written down for soap, which consisted of uhulu, which is ashes, um, cypress oil, and sesame seed oil for used for, quote, washing the stones for the servant girls. End quote. And I have no further information about that. <laughs> I would guess that if we're washing stones with like, or by servants, it would be for like laundry. That's what I imagined, but it was like for, for um, like making sure the stones were clean so that when you rubbed the clothes on them to like in sure. the sense of a washboard, I don't, sure. let's speculate. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But also you need to remember that um, most of the people who determined the definitions for words like this oh, didn't right. have a great sense of That's how right. I always forget. like regular life works. That's <laughs> <laughs> gotta wash them stones yeah so they're like no that's what happens with laundry so like you might not necessarily fair point it might not t- like link to anything that happened in the 6th century bce or <laughs> the 19th century ce or ever but in ancient israel the ashes from barilla plants so where you where you get where the, the pasta, pasta grows. Yep, that's yeah. where the pasta grows on. Mm-hmm. Um, ashes from barilla plants were used in soap production, known as potash. Mm-hmm. Um, or as young Amber read it, potash. I always thought it was potash too. Is, is it, it not? Is, I thought it was potash, like it's potash. ash in the pot. Potash. Um, <laughs> soap made from potash, um, <laughs> which is itself just a concentrate of burnt wood or vegetable ashes mixed with lard or olive oil so that soap is alkaline Mm -hmm. if animal lard were used it was heated and kept lukewarm Mm. Mm. lard needed to be rendered and strained before being used with ashes as seen in the documentary film fight club fight club god (laughs) I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> I made it 10 you minutes. <laughs> yep. Traditionally, olive oil was used instead of animal lard throughout the Levant, um, which this isn't a great it, sentence. Oh, no, that's, no, um, I didn't, I didn't notice that. I didn't write that sentence. Okay. The Levant was boiled in the yeah. cover culture. So, oh, boy. Throughout the Levant, um, it was often the case that olive oil was used instead of animal lard um, and the olive oil was boiled in a copper cauldron for several days. As the boiling progresses, alkali ashes and smaller quantities of quicklime were added and constantly stirred. Once it began to thicken, the brew was poured into a mold and left to cool and harden for two weeks. After hardening, it was cut into smaller cakes. Aromatic herbs were often added to the rendered soap to impart their fragrance, such as yarrow leaves, lavender, and so forth. Sounds nice. Um, I'm going to see if I can find the link to this, but I remember seeing a video online of, um, I think it was men in somewhere, I think it might have been Iran, um, but they were making soap basically on the entire floor of a room. So they like sort of poured it out and spread it and then like cut it into very precise cakes. And it's very satisfying to watch. So I'll see if I can find that video. And I bet it smells like that one aisle at Whole Foods. <laughs> that aisle? I like that aisle. I love That's that a good aisle. Smelling. Yeah, it's a great smell. Hello. Welcome to Bougie Corner. Okay. I was going to um, say Berkeley Bowl, but that's too niche. <laughs> 
Okay. All of Burger uh, Bowl smells like that. <laughs> Go on. Okay. We, uh, we're going to continue with some, uh, some text from a paper called A Natural History of Hygiene. Quote, if early humans kept themselves and their surroundings clean, did they also avoid diseased others? Diseased others. That's my post-punk band. An ancient Mesopotamian text shows how an exorcist explained the sickness of a patient. Quote, he has come into contact with a woman of unclean hands, or his hands have touched one of unclean body. End quote. So in that particular excerpt, it's not clear if the person is speaking of disease or if a woman of unclean hands refers to a sex worker. Um, the authors of the paper mentioned both possibilities. So continuing from that paper, what? a Babylonian letter from the 17th century BCE counsels not sharing a chair, a bed, or a cup with a lady suffering from a disease. Certainly humans have continued to find rationales for what they felt to be right through to the present day. Sometimes the explanations were supernatural or religious, sometimes moral, sometimes naturalistic or scientific. Purification rituals are a common feature of religions. In Mesopotamian times, kipuru was purification through the application and wiping off of a flour paste. Flour as in uh, ground, ground grain, not as in, you know, flowers. It came to mean purification in general, as in the Hebrew word kippur, which I didn't know. That's exciting. Like Yom Kippur. Yeah. So it has to do with purification. Yep. Wow. It's from, yeah, it's from Akkadian. Wow. Wow. The laws of Manu, part of the four sacred Vedas of Hindu scripture, circa 200 BCE, prescribed the avoidance of the 12 impurities of the body. So those include oily exudations, semen, blood, urine, feces, the mucus of the nose, earwax, phlegm, tears, the room of the eyes, and sweat, etc. I definitely have been experiencing a lot of rim of the eyes lately. Oh, that's separate it's from allergy tears. season. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Christian morality became inextricably linked with hygiene, but not till after the Middle Ages, really. What was clean and pure was what was morally right. Wash me clean of my guilt, purify me from my sin is something that comes from Psalm 51. What is that, line 2? I don't know. Psalms um, 51, no, chapter, 2. Psalms chapter 51, verse 2. Verse 2, right. The Quran agrees. Quote, God loves those that turn to him in repentance and strive to keep themselves clean, uh, which and the citation for that is two two twenty three. I mean, this is all like, OK, I, you yeah. tell me if there's something that comes up in like Judaism and then you're like, also in Christianity, see the Old yeah, Testament, of course. which is. Yeah. Used I mean, all, these all intersect. Yeah, just like, OK. <laughs> yep. But it's just nice to to be like, yep. Everybody, everybody's saying it. Yep. Greek history relates both supernatural and naturalistic rationales for hygienic behavior. The word miasma originally meant stain or sins that offended the gods, but came to be used as a term for the foul airs and atmospheres that caused disease. It was the Greeks, however, who coined the word hygiene. So that was, again, the goddess Hygieia, granddaughter of Apollo, daughter of Asclepius. I mean, that's a bit of a, okay. <laughs> and she uh, supposedly headed a local healing cult, which spread across the Hellenic world following the plagues of 429 BCE and 427 BCE. Mm. Not great years. Hippocrates, 
460 BCE to 377 BCE, exhorted that to stay healthy, one needed order and balance in all things, and above all, to stay away from the airs, waters, and places that contained the dangerous miasmas that were responsible for disease. The miasma idea hopped from the Greeks via Galen and the monasteries to medieval science. But before we get medieval, we should probably mention the Romans. Oh, yeah. Those Romans loved them some baths. Love baths. We've mentioned this before, but it was back in our episode of curses. So we were more talking about the curses and less the bathing. Not so much the bathing. Yeah, Yeah. not as much about the bathing. Okay. Such was the importance of baths to Romans that a catalog of buildings in Rome from 354 CE documented 952 baths of varying sizes in the city. I imagine these are public baths and not like individual people's bathtubs, right? It's like, excuse me, ma'am, can I come in and survey your bathtub? The bath census is again. Oh, God. Uh, Every year. Yeah. Um, Although wealthy Romans might set up a bath in their townhouses or out in their country villas, heating a series of rooms or even a separate building especially for this purpose... Didn't read that like a human. Um, (laughs) Although wealthy Romans might set up a bath in their townhouses or in their country villas, heating a series of rooms or even a separate building, especially for this purpose, and soldiers might have a bathhouse provided at their fort, um, case in point, at Hadrian's Wall, um, they still often frequented the numerous public bathhouses in the cities and towns throughout the empire. So Roman baths varied from simple to exceedingly elaborate structures, and they varied in size, arrangement, and decoration. Most contained, <laughs> most contained an apoditarium, which was basically a locker room, which I will now refer to yep. the locker room at any gym I attend as the apoditarium. Oh, I um, left my water bottle in the apoditarium. Oh, dang again. it. Um, and this was just inside the entrance where the bather stored his clothes. Or her clothes. Um, or, next, or there, or neither, or both. Whatever. Next, bathers progressed into the tepidarium, which is the warm pool. Mm. Mm. Then into the <laughs> caldarium, which is the Ooh. hot pool, or the hot room for a steam. And then finally, into the frigidarium, cold Ooh. room, with its tank of cold water. The caldarium, uh, no, sorry, the caldarium, heated from underneath the hollow floor, contained cold water basins, which the bather could use for cooling. After taking the series of sweat and or immersion baths, the bather returned to the cooler tepidarium for a massage with oils and a final scraping with a metal implement called a strigil. That the internet keeps trying to sell me via wish. Yeah. It's like, no, um, I use a washcloth. Thank you. Some baths also contained a laconium, um, a dry resting room. That's what I'm going to refer to my apartment as, (laughs) the laconium, um, where the bather completed the process by resting and sweating. Those are my two chief activities. (laughs) Um, So a friend of the show, Paula, asked specifically about the hot cold cycle, um, and I think This is maybe the first recorded instance of this practice, but now it's grown into something that folks interested in alternative medicine is supposed to dilate the veins. 
yikes, um, relax yeah. the muscles and stimulate the flushing out of things from the lymph system through a cycle of alternating immersion in hot and cold baths. This might be helpful for um, athlete muscle recovery and to ease soreness, but there doesn't seem to be any other legitimate medical benefit. Then again, we're not medical, we're not medical doctors. So let's stick with the Romans here. So this is like when um, you have to do like an ice bath. No, well, that's if you so hurt there, yourself. There, are, there are two things that I found, like the things having to do with muscles, heat and cold genuinely seem to help with that because okay. it will both of those things reduce inflammation. So if you have an athletic injury and you either ice it or heat it, whatever your doctor tells you to do, that seems to help. But there's also this um, school of thought that involves cycling through hot and cold immersion um, to like detox your system. Oh. And that's not, that's not a thing. Yeah. Cause See, um, that was the whole lymph. That was the whole lymph thing where okay. it was like the hot water forces your lymph nodes to relax. And then when you shock them with cold water, they contract and, and it, I not, it's not a thing. It's and not then, a thing. then what the lymph, like it's supposed to help sweat out your limbs. Yeah. Something what? like that. I don't know. Okay. Again, that's when you get like the doctors, jade rollers and you rub them on your face and that yeah, helps and you, and you that. steam your butt. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. We should open a spa. I mean, we, we could. We wouldn't be able to tout any legit medical benefits, but we could make people feel nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Roman themed. Yeah. Because wealthy Romans brought slaves to attend their bathing needs. That will not be a feature of our spa. Oh, no. We don't want slaves. No slaves. No slaves. Okay. No, thank you. All right. Well, (laughs) the bathhouse usually had three entrances. One for men, one for women. And one for slaves. Yep. Great. (laughs) Solid walls or placement on opposite sides of the building usually separated the men's and women's sections. Roman bathhouses often contained a courtyard or a palestra and an open air garden used for exercise. Hmm. I just imagine like awkward stretching. Probably. Like doing lunges. Like walking across doing lunges. Downward dog. Republican bathhouses... As in the Roman <laughs> Republic, not not the RNC. <laughs> GOP bathhouses. <laughs> um, no, Republican bathhouses often had separate bathing facilities for women and men because the Roman Republic was soups conservative. Actually, well, no, they were like it was like a more yeah, conservative. Were, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. No, once wasn't once a Augustus showed. This yeah. Okay. I was like, but it was. OK. <laughs> this is a comment on the Roman Republic. But okay, by good. the first Sometimes century, CD, mixed bathing was common uh, and is a practice frequently referred to in Marshall and Juvenile, who were writers yes. um, as well in as well as in Pliny and Quintilian. To many Roman moralists, baths illustrated how far the Rome of their own day had fallen into decline and so became a negative image. Cato the Elder publicly attacked Scipio Africanus for his use of the bathhouses. Wow. Yeah. Okay, boomer. Roman bathhouses offered amenities in addition to the bathing ritual. Within the bathhouse proper, there might be food and perfume selling booths, libraries, and reading rooms. Stages accommodated theatrical and musical performances. So naturally, our spa will include all of these features. Yeah. Yeah. 
just like a jam band for all the sweaty naked people. Mm-hmm. Cool. Adjacent stadia provided spaces for exercises, exercise and athletic competitions. Inside the bathhouses proper, marble mosaics tiled the elegant floors. Are they trying to sell this to me? I mean, it's working. The stuccoed walls frequently sported frescoes of trees, birds, and other pastoral images. Sky blue paint, gold stars, and celestial imagery adorned interior domes. Statuary and fountains decorated the interior and exterior. Yeah. Doesn't that sound nice? Um, You know what else is nice? What else is nice? That folks support this podcast with ads. Ads! It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. All right. So far, this has been admittedly very classics and Eurocentric. Uh, We can't help it. So, well, we can help it. And we're going to help it. I can talk more about those those clean rocks. Clean those rocks. The Kipuru. We're going to scoot over to some other parts of the world and check out what the history of bathing looks like there. We're going to start with Japan. So in Japan, bathing as a regular activity dates at least as far back as the 6th century CE with the introduction into the country of Buddhism and associated ritual purification. A traditional Japanese furo bath was more like a modern day sauna or steam room. The body was cleansed mostly via heat and steam. At this time, bathers would often take a change of clothes wrapped in fabric, which is the origin of furoshiki, the traditional art of wrapping objects so they can be carried. You practice furoshiki on your dog a lot. Oh, I do. <laughs> oh. Wrap her up, hide her in a bag. Yeah. In However, <laughs> this style of bathing was a great luxury at the time, a pursuit rather than a necessity. 
the warrior class and commoners alike would usually wash in a washtub or by using water from a pail. A furo differs from a conventional western bathtub by being of deeper construction, typically in the region of 0.6 meters or 25 inches. The sides are generally square rather than being sloped. They generally have no overflow drainage. Traditional pot-shaped cast iron furrow were heated by a wood-burning stove built in below them, which, like, my cartoon brain immediately wow. puts up that image. You know when Bugs Bunny is in Elmer Fudd's cauldron? Yeah. And no. he's, like, chopping carrots into that? It definitely sounds like... You're stewing yourself. Yeah. Mm. But, you, you know, it, you can keep it at a low heat. It's not like... You can control the heat. So it's like a human crock pot. Less yeah, a human low and slow, hot eh? pot. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so furo or yubune, which specifically refers to the bath with water and not just the steam bath, are usually left filled with water overnight. And in some households, the water is reused or recycled for washing clothes the next day. It was the custom for more than one member of the family to use the same bath water. And therefore, for the Japanese, it was important to be completely clean before entering the bath. So the bath is less for cleaning the body and more for soaking and some aspects of purification, but not actually like your scrub-a-dubs. The water is hot, usually about 100 to 108 Fahrenheit, which is 38 to 42 degrees Celsius. Traditional Japanese baths can also occur at the onsen, a fac... nope, not a faculty. Hmm. A facility built around natural hot springs, or the sento, the communal bathhouse. In the modern era, the bath continues to be a hugely important feature of the house and or lifestyle, as reported in this article about the, the system bath or unit bath from japantimes.co. Quote, Japanese people love their evening bath, but tubs in private residences are a relatively recent development. By 1963, only 60% of Japanese homes had them. But as workers became more affluent and construction of new dwellings continued apace, even renters starting what? Even renters started demanding their own bathtubs and toilets. The system bath, or unit bath, revolutionized the housing market, and as with expressways and some other modern conveniences, it was introduced to Japan by means of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. The system bath incorporated a toilet, a sink, and a western-style bathtub into a single prefabricated unit that could be installed easily and quickly, and it became a famous feature of the Hotel New Otani, which had to be finished before the start of the games. The Japan Housing Corporation adopted the system bath for the tens of thousands of apartments it had planned for the country in the 1960s. These apartments, both for rent and for sale, were characterized by two new features, the dining kitchen area and the bathroom, which provided space for a Japanese bathtub. The toilet had its own compartment and the sink was installed in the dressing area. With Western baths, water is heated remotely and then transferred to the bathtub. In Japan, the water is heated in the bathtub. This self-contained heating concept is known as oidaki and remains standard, even as houses and apartments started using central water heaters. The main idea is that the temperature of the water in the tub is maintained over the course of an evening so that every member of the family can take a hot bath in succession. And since users, again, wash the body outside the tub, the water stays cleaner longer and can be reheated on subsequent days. Thus, the oidaki system helps to conserve energy and water. Wow. Yeah. This is the part at which when writing this script, I was sitting in my very chilly apartment and going, I want a bath. Um, this is the point in which I'm sitting in my very chilly apartment and thinking, <laughs> I wish I had a bath. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I've got like one of those sad stall showers. Yeah. Oh, man. 
You could, I don't know, hot water bottle? Cuddle your dog? Get inside it? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, oh, I could cuddle my dog. What are you doing? Where is she? Oh, hi. She's <laughs> well, there's another famous set of bathing and steaming traditions that we'd be remiss if we neglected, and that is the Scandinavian, in particular, the Finnish, sauna. Sauna. <laughs> yes. Um, from the Atlantic. <laughs> Little says Finland, quite like a sauna. The word itself is Finnish, and in the country of some 5 million people, there are roughly 2 million saunas. Taking a sauna is a centuries-old tradition that started in the rural parts of the country as a way for farm workers to get a reprieve from the cold weather, and the practice gradually worked its way into urban areas. According to Finland's official sauna society, a Helsinki-based group, not to be confused with the Diplomatic Sauna Society, whose purpose is to preserve and promote sauna culture locally, I'm 100% behind both of these groups. Yes. Um, uh, they say, at its most primitive, the sauna was probably a pit dug into a slope with a heap of heated stones in one corner. As recently as the turn of the 20th century, women in rural areas would give birth in a sauna. The room would also be used to prepare dead bodies for burial. I read that often the walls of saunas were coated with like charcoal ash, and that's actually antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. So it's not so weird that you might, um, it might be better to give birth in a sauna. Um, hmm. So, yeah. And and maybe the, the heat would help kind of ease some of the muscle contractions and cramping. Oof. I don't know. I yeah. Know. Woof. Oh, gosh. There's some finished <laughs> words coming up. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I tried to, I tried oh, to limit the amount of... I haven't done it in a really long oh, time. Oh, man. Oh. Saunas, saunas get hot by a means of a stove that heats a basket of rocks. Ladling water onto the rocks with an instrument the Finns call a loilukauha. Yeah, li or like lilikauha mm. or something. I don't know. Loilikauha creates a, cool a wave word. of steam or loili. Yeah. It's typical for the temperature of a Finnish sauna to reach as high as 190 degrees Fahrenheit. That is very hot. And Finns evidently love it. It's been reported that 99% of them use a sauna, a sauna at least once a week. They also tout the benefits of a good steaming. One recent study from a Finnish university found that men who use saunas seven or more times per week were less likely to die of heart disease than men who used a sauna once a week. That's is, pretty significant. I wonder. Like, I, I don't. But I don't know the sample size or anything. But I also feel like this could be an issue of correlation versus causation. Yeah, like because do they if you're also, in a position your to like hop in one seven times yeah. a week or more, um, you might have some other things going for you. Yeah, I didn't look further into that study, but I linked to the article, and you can probably trace it back if you really want to snoop it out. Oh, here comes something dumb. Uh, this is not to say there's no such thing as overheating. At the 2010 World Sauna Championships, hey, hey, maybe don't, don't do that. <laughs> a competition hosted in Finland over who can sit the longest in extreme heat, a Russian contestant died after spending six minutes in a sauna heated to 230 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So what actually happened, and not to not to make light of it, but they they cooked a person. Yep. 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 That's terrible. 
It's not great. Then again, it was a voluntary activity, so. Yeah, but yikes. Yikes, indeed. Um, Eero Kekkonen, a Cold War era president of Finland, was reputed to have used the sauna to soften up the Soviets. Which feels like a statement in poor taste after we just read about a Russian person being cooked. Yeah, but this was before that. Legend has it. That when Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev came to Finland for Kekkonen's 60th birthday, the two, the two stayed in the sauna till five o'clock in the morning. As Finland's then Secretary of State, Perti Torstila, recounted the tale at the 15th International Sauna Congress in 2010. Are you kidding me? I love this. Um, at the end of the visit, a communique was issued in which the Soviet government expressed its preparedness to support Finland's desire to integrate and cooperate with the West. Yep. Sauna. The Finnish are serious about their saunas. There was that time that the Finnish built a sauna in the desert in 1987. What? <laughs> no, no, keep going. Oh, it's boy. so good. When Finnish troops were assigned to the United Nations peacekeeping force in the Sinai Desert, they built in the Sinai 30- Desert. <laughs> the Sinai Desert. They built thirty-five huts to house saunas. Annalee Hallinan, a Finnish diplomat formerly stationed in Tel Aviv, said, "The Israelis and the Egyptians looked on, at, looked at them, and couldn't figure out what was in those strange huts. When the Finnish officer told them it was a sauna, they began laughing. In this heat." Which is a very, I can only hear that in like a Jewish intonation in my head. Like, in this heat, what are you doing? (sighs) Well, let's have some ads. (laughs) Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay, it's time for a roundup. Here are a few warm and steamy bathing traditions from around the world. We're going to start with Turkey. For Turkish people, bathing is a semi-religious ritual in which purifying the body goes hand-in-hand with purifying the soul. Muhammad himself enthusiastically endorsed sweat baths around 600 CE, and hammams are often a kind of annex to a mosque, featuring elaborate domes and ornate architectural elements that emphasize an atmosphere of sanctity and reflection. The centerpiece of the hammam is a hot stone slab where bathers loosen up and undergo a five-step purifying ritual, the warming of the body, an extremely vigorous massage, the scraping of skin and hair, soaping, and finally, relaxation. Have you ever, have you ever done a hammam? I don't like other people touching me. Ever been on that hot stone slab? I've been on a hot stone it's real nice, but this was like out in nature in the summer. Yeah, okay. And I was no, I was in a river. It, oh man, it is. Is it real hot? It's it's very hot. Yeah, it's it's it is very hot and very hard. I mean, those are two things that a hot stone is. So yep. I don't know what to tell you. Mm. All right, moving on to Russia. What the sauna is to Finns, the banya is to Russians. 
Pushkin, the Russian writer and patriarch of Russian culture, described the Banya as a Russian's, quote, second mother. Okay. He goes to his second mother for rejuvenation, warmth, and a bath. She restores him to a state of glowing health. In Russia, sweating and health are virtually synonymous, and unlike the semi-religious purification of the hammam, or the stoic calm of Finnish saunas, Russian banyas are loud, boisterous, steamy affairs. Yes, the Russian's bath of choice is a steam bath, and they like it extremely hot. The steam is produced by pouring water over a massive heater filled with hot stones. Patrons disrobe and don felt hats dipped in cold water to protect them from the extreme heat. Once they've got a good sweat going, out come veniki, Birch switches with leaves dipped in icy water, with which Russian men and women take turns beating each other to stimulate the sweat glands. The experience is capped off with a nice long shower and a shot or two of vodka before trudging out into the cold Moscow air. I should say that uh, much of this kind of florid description comes from standardhotels.com. So it's very much sort of a travel writing sort of vibe. Okay, so now Korea. Korea's bathing culture bears a resemblance to Japan's, which some attribute to Japanese rule in the 20th century, while others point to an earlier migration from China through Korea to Japan. Where Japan's bathing rituals are notable for their austerity and emphasis on simplicity, Korea's bathhouses, Mogyoktang, in their more traditional form, or Jimjilbang, in their modern incarnation, are sprawling, casual, and social, allowing visitors to wander through steam rooms, saunas, herbal pools, charcoal, cold, quote, saunas, ice rooms, and jade rooms, with breaks for eating and socializing. God, that sounds like a great day. It does sound like but a great day. If I could do it by myself, though. Or with a robe. I'd take a robe. Bathing areas are separated by gender and full nudity is the norm. Okay, nope. Only One's only accompaniment into the baths is a, quote, lamb head, a small hand towel used to wipe sweat from one's eyes. Yes. It's totally normal for friends and even strangers to scrub each other's hard-to-reach places. Hence the old Korean maxim, you're not really friends with someone until you've bathed naked together in a jimjilbang. Okay, I guess we're not friends. Perhaps the most iconic feature of Korea's bathing culture is seshin, extremely vigorous exfoliating body scrubs administered by ajumas, middle-aged women who pummel, slap, scour, and cover bathers in hot towels, leaving skin glowing and soft. Which really all sounds lovely, but a fixation on cleanliness in some cultures is also a major boon to the companies that sell us the various goop that we put on ourselves to feel clean. Amber, would you be surprised to know that the history of toiletries is one driven nearly entirely by consumerism and contrivance? Absolutely not. Yeah, no, I know. I figured. <laughs> <laughs> For example, let's talk about those teeth. Two first. It's good to brush and floss. Yeah. There are even studies that show that flossing can prevent heart disease. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I regularly have nightmares about. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. But I got a water pick. Good. Went to a party last week and we all talked about water picks for a long time. This is your 30s. Yeah. Human mouths. about right. <laughs> Human mouths. Kind of stinky. Always been stinky. Yeah. And don't worry. There are ancient breath freshening solutions to prove it. Um, ancient Egyptians fashioned toothpaste out of natron. So... Salt. Mummify Straight those gums. Salt. <laughs> um, Gummify. They made 
They made breast Gummy sweetening mummies. pellets of frankincense and myrrh. In the medieval Islamic world, people chewed on the mouth freshening twigs of the Salvadora persica shrub. Um, did you ever chew on birch twigs? I did all the time. Yeah. I love I love birch. Yeah. It tastes so good. Yep. And it's good for it's good for your good teeth. Good for those two yep. Yeah. Um the Chinese were the first to come up with the idea of brushing teeth in the way that you may be familiar with today. Um although the hog's hair bristles they used in the 15th century CE, CE were effective, the idea did not catch on elsewhere for several centuries. Um Talmudic scholars report that the Torah decried bad breath as a major disability. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Meaning that it could be grounds for a wife to seek divorce or could prevent priests from carrying out their duties. Yep. Uh, Don't want a stinky priest. No. Uh, fortunately, the Talmud also suggests some remedies, including rinsing with a mouthwash of oil and water. So they were the ones that started the oil pulling thing. <sighs> Let's not let's not go there. <laughs> I can't. Or the chewing of a mastic gum, which is the chewing of a chewing gum uh, yeah. made from yeah. tree resin. This resin, which has since been shown, to have, yeah, yeah, uh, which has since been shown to have antibacterial properties, is still used as gum in Greece and Turkey today. I've never had mastic gum. Have you? I don't know. Okay, not not to your knowledge. Okay, <laughs> I've seen it sold in like Middle Eastern grocery shops and have been tempted, but I, maybe someday. IDK toothpicks made of bone, ivory, quills, wood, or various metals were popular in the world. Were popular around the world until the Victorian era era when they were suddenly considered uncouth. In Europe and the U.S., tins of breath fresheners called cashew. Um, became, <laughs> it became a must-have item in the 1800s. The candies sucked or chewed to a disguise of stinking breath, according to one 1850 self-help book, were made from cardamom, ambergris, musk, essence of violet, essence of rose, licorice, or oil of cinnamon. Wow. A couple of those are real rough. Um. But in the 1880s, a product called Listerine hit the market, and with it came the term halitosis. Mm -hmm. For decades after Listerine first hit the market in the 1880s, it was kind of a jack-of-all-trades product. Originally invented as a surgical antiseptic and named after the founding father of antiseptics, oh, Dr. Joseph Lister, mm -hmm. its uses were varied. They included foot cleaning, floor scrubbing, and gonorrhea treating. Yeah. I'm thinking so of this Lysol. Was, yeah, Go. no, Lysol was the um the other one. Yeah. yeah, we talked about that in our Dirt After Dark episode. Yeah, yeah no, Listerine was, uh, and it is still more, more or less the same formulation, uh, was originally a treatment for gonorrhea applied externally. Woo! That sounds... Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> um... Advertisements for Listerine transformed halitosis from the Latin word for unpleasant breath from a bothersome personal imperfection to an embarrassing medical condition that urgently required treatment. Treatment that, conveniently, the company wanted to sell. 
Ultimately, the Bad Breath campaign was so successful that marketing historians refer to it as the halitosis appeal, shorthand for using fear to sell product. Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar. It does. And so that's where the um, the phrase always a bridesmaid, never a bride really became popular. It's a really famous Listerine ad. Um, and I, I'll try to find it so I can put it up on Wait, social media. Because- but it's because she had bad breath she had bad breath yeah she never she could never find a man so she was always the bridesmaid stinky bridesmaid yeah it's it's nice that she kept getting invited to weddings yeah well she had a great friend group Um, yeah so (laughs) oh boy so that's definitely a feature of marketing for toiletries today the idea that any human smell is an unpleasant one that must be eliminated or masked Sprayed with cologne, deodorants, powders, washes, lotions. The number of products boggles the mind, but that's not surprising since people have been thinking about personal cleanliness and smells for a long, long time. The history of bathing and hygiene is a very, very long and fascinating one. To Paula, we hope we've given you an adequate sampling of the topic and thank you again so much for sponsoring this episode. This one was fun to research. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you, as always, listeners, for listening and for your support and your reviews. We'll be back soon in your ears with even more fun sponsored episodes, which you can find on the podcatcher of your choosing. Yes, you can. And you can find us on the social medias. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at the dirt pod and all of that lives together at the dirtpod.com and if you want to support the show you can do so at a number of attractively priced tiers at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast thanks everybody we love you goodbye go clean yourselves goodbye bye This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.